Okay, so our, um, our final speaker for this afternoon is going to be Jan Natier. We're so fortunate to have her here for this semester. She is currently the Numata Visiting Professor of Buddhist Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. She did her undergraduate work in comparative religion, specializing in Buddhism at Indiana University, where she also began graduate training in Central Asian languages. She completed her PhD at Harvard, specializing in classical Mongolian and Tibetan, and she's taught at Macalester College, the University of Hawaii, Stanford, Indiana University, and the University of Tokyo, in addition to serving as research professor of Buddhist studies at Soka University in Japan. Fortunately, she is now officially retired, (laughs) 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 which means that she can finally devote herself full-time to research on Chinese translations of Buddhist texts from India that have not survived in any Indian language. And her current focus is on the earliest Chinese translations of the story of the death of Mahaprajapati, which is the topic that she'll be telling us about today. Thank you so much. Great. Is that on? Okay. Amazing that in all these decades of teaching, I've never encountered one of these. (laughs) We had other uh, means of broadcasting, but uh, this is a new machine. So thank you very much, Kim. Um, It's such a pleasure to be here uh, with all of you and for this very special occasion of fundraising. Um, It's quite a lovely thing to be uh, in a discussion of all of these texts with these venerable members of the Sangha here. So I appreciate your uh, vocations and I appreciate your presence as well. What I'm going to talk about today actually comes out of my research, not originally on Pali, but on a Chinese Buddhist text that happened to deal with the death of Mahaprajapati. And you'll hear me say her name both in Pali the Mahapajapati, and sometimes in Sanskrit with the R in there, Mahaprajapati. The reason I stumbled onto this text, really, is that uh, over the years, my research has shifted away from the Central Asian languages that I was trained in into working with Chinese texts. And the reason for that is very simple. Uh, A lot of the questions that I had that I'd hoped to use Mongolian and Tibetan to solve are really questions about Buddhism in India. And of course, in the Mongolian and Tibetan canons, there are preserved hundreds of texts that are translations of Indian originals. But the Tibetan canon from which the Mongolian was translated was put together much later than the Chinese canon. And I discovered over the course of the years that many of the texts on topics that I wanted to read about hadn't been translated into Tibetan at all, but they had into Chinese. And so, um, major retread after my PhD, I've moved more and more into Chinese sources. And this story of the death of Mahaprajapati kept popping up when I was doing computer searches for vocabulary belonging to the main translator I work on, who's from the third century. This is a translator named Zhe Qian, who you've probably never heard of, 
who translated both Mahayana and non-Mahayana scriptures. They were all, as far as he was concerned, word of the Buddha. So I'm particularly focusing on Agama texts, non-Mahayana sutras or suttas that he produced. But this text kept popping up. It's not one of his texts. Same kind of unusual vocabulary. And so I decided to actually read the text. And I found a fascinating Chinese translation of the story of the end of Mahaprajapati's life. And so it's that that has served as the stimulus for what I'm going to be talking about today. But I'm going to begin with some general comments about Mahaprajapati and her place in the Pali scriptures before closing with some observations on the differences between the Pali account of her death and the account that we find in this Chinese translation. So the woman who is known as in Pali as Mahapajapati Gotami, Gotami being her clan name, uh, is by all accounts one of the most important female figures in the history of early Buddhism. As a young woman, she served as the foster mother of the child who was to become the Buddha. After his own mother, you probably know the story well, uh, his own mother, who was her sister, Maya, died when the Buddha-to-be was just seven days old. Later in life, Mahabhajapati is renowned for having persuaded the Buddha to establish an order of nuns, parallel to the order of monks for male monastics. According to traditional accounts, which I'm sure you know all too well, the Buddha rejected her request three times, so they say, and then finally and reluctantly gave in when Ananda argued the case on Mahabhajapati's behalf. I'll come back to that a little bit later on. So Mahapajapati thus holds two distinguished roles in early Buddhist hagiography, or stories of the saints, we could say. First, as the Buddha's foster mother, who brought him up on the one hand, and as the first Buddhist nun on the other. Now, she's mentioned here and there in the Pali Canon in other contexts. For example, in a sutta from the Majjhima the Dakini Vibhanga Sutta, you could say the kind of parsing of gifts, the different categorizing of offerings, where early in the Buddha's preaching career, when she's still a laywoman, she goes to the Buddha and attempts to offer him a pair of cloths, in other words, a robe, that she's made, woven herself. But the Buddha refuses to take it saying she should give it to the Sangha as a whole instead. In other words, not as a personal gift, but as a gift to the entire Sangha, which includes the Buddha within it. Another sutta from the same collection, the Nandakovada Sutta, takes place after her ordination as a nun. Here, Mahapajapati goes to the Buddha together with 500 other nuns and asks him to teach them. But again, in a sutta for which we have to raise some questions about how this was edited and passed down, the Buddha, without so much as a reply, turns to Ananda and asks him, whose turn is it to preach to the nuns today? (laughs) This seems a bit rude, even on the kindest reading. Ananda replies that it is the monk Nandaka's turn, but Nandaka doesn't want to do it, and the Buddha has to insist that he go and give them a Dharma talk, which he finally does to good effect, and they benefit from it. 
References to Mahabhajapati can also be found in the Anguttara Nikaya, as some earlier speakers have mentioned, which contains an account, among other things, of her request for ordination and Ananda's ultimately successful lobbying on her behalf. This is the same story that's found also in the Vinaya, the monastic rules section of the canon. And her name also appears on the list of outstanding nuns that's been mentioned in the Anguttara Nikaya, where she's described as foremost in seniority, in other words, the first woman to be ordained as a nun. One other appearance of Mahabhajapati can be found in a short sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya again, in which she asks, and this is apparently while she's still a laywoman, though it's placed after uh, a sutta where she's becoming a nun, uh, a sutta where she goes to the Buddha as a laywoman and asks him to preach the Dharma to her in brief, the teachings in a nutshell. In this case, in contrast to the sutta we talked about earlier, the Nandakovada, where the Buddha passes the request on to someone else, he actually complies and gives her a short discourse on how to determine what is and what is not the Dharma. In the well-known formulation, which also occurs elsewhere, that whatever is conducive to dispassion and not to passion, to liberation and not to bondage, and so on, that is the teaching of the Buddha. This small handful of passages is the sum total of all the references to Mahavajapati that occur in the Pali Sutta or Sutra literature. The other two collections that I haven't mentioned, I've mentioned the Majjhima Nikaya and the Diga Nikaya, but the, uh, sorry, and the Anguttara Nikaya, but the other two, the Diga Nikaya and the Samyutta Nikaya, don't mention Mahavajapati at all. Now, there are other mentions of her elsewhere in the canon, of course, in the Vinaya, where we again get the story of her request for ordination and the Buddha's ultimate acceptance of that, which is virtually identical to the account in the Anguttara Nikaya. She's also, as you've heard, one of the 73 nuns whose uh, words are uh, related in the Terigata. But somewhat surprisingly, let me just pause to point this out, you would think for a woman of her distinction, of her unique important roles in early Buddhism, that she'd be somehow featured, that she'd be first or last as the culminating statement or the longest or something. But no, she's right in the middle of the Terigata in the section of people that have six verses. Not particularly prominent, not any more or less prominent than the other women in that collection. So the overall impression one gets in surveying the Pali Canon, is that there's far less mention of Mahavajapati than one might expect. And there's also, as you know, far less mention of women in general and of nuns in particular than one might expect. If you read through the entire canon looking for things that are said about women, as people have done for presentations today, it's striking how male-centered this material is, the suttas in particular. And that raises a question that I will be uh, returning to about what else was there that we don't have? Was there material that was transmitted by women to women, perhaps also to men, that has not come down to us? I'm putting that out not as a hypothesis, but as a question. And you'll see in my conclusions why uh, I suspect that that may have been very relevant to this topic. Just 
as we get going with the discussion of the Pali Parinirvana story, I'd like to point out that although the Pali canon is vastly important for us in understanding Indian Buddhism, it's one of many Indian canons that once existed. Different ordination lineages each had their own set of scriptures that they transmitted. And it happens that the Pali has been preserved. It also happens that some texts that were not in Pali have been translated into Chinese at a very early date and preserved there. So there's other old Indian material that's not in Pali, not in Sanskrit, not in any Indian language, but is legitimate, uh, authentic Indian material. So that's always to be borne in mind. The Pali canon is a voice, it's a source, but it doesn't tell us everything that there is to know or that there was to know about the history of Buddhism in India and about Mahaprajapati and other bhikkhunis in particular. Now, the longest discussion of Mahaprajapati, actually, in the canon, is not in any of the sections that I've referred to up until now. It's in a collection of discourses called the Apadanas, and Diana mentioned this briefly in her talk this morning. And I would guess that many of you might not have even encountered the word Apadana in your travels through bookstores and online materials. Even to find a good definition of Apadana is not always easy. But what these texts are is collections of stories. Um, one translator of a few of them has called them background stories. And they're generally stories of a person, a man or a woman, and uh, there are almost 600 of these tales of which 40 are about women. That's not very good odds, but they're there, and one is about Mahapajapati. So these are generally tales of distant previous lives in which someone who ultimately became a monk or a nun, uh, and ultimately an arhat generally, met a previous Buddha and made offerings to that Buddha of the distant past. These, there are many other Buddhas said to have existed before our Buddha, Shakyamuni or Gotama. And by making offerings to that Buddha and serving that Buddha, they amassed huge amounts of merit, which then in the intervening lifetimes often got them rebirth as a god or a goddess or a king or a queen or a rich merchant, and then ultimately brought them into the presence of the historical Buddha, as we call him, uh, Shakyamuni or Gotama or Siddhartha, uh, in whose presence they were able to attain awakening. So these are stories of merit from distant past lives. Immediately, knowing that the one having to do with Mahabhajapati is about her death, we can see that it doesn't fit in as far as the genre goes. And I'll just uh, say one thing in passing before I go to the story itself. There are versions of this story in a number of languages, which we've been reading in our seminar this semester. I'm fortunate to have at least one student per language. So we have people who read it in Tibetan or Pali or Sanskrit or Gandhari fragments or Chinese. And all of these stories of the Parinirvana, the final uh, nirvana, as uh, the death of an awakened person is called, are out of place in the place in the canons that they've been put. The one in the Pali Apadana is not mainly about her merit in distant previous lives. There's a little bit, kind of a gesture toward that in the story. There's a Chinese one in the analog of the Anguttara Nikaya collection, the Ekotarikahagama. But it's stuck at the end of the text where it should be in texts that are about categories of 11 somethings. But there are no 11s in this text, so it doesn't belong there either. 
It shows up in the Tibetan and the Chinese vinyas belonging to a school called the Mula Savarstavadans. And there, it's been pigeonholed into a rule of how when, someone, when the Buddha sneezes or a monastic sneezes, you shouldn't say, may you live for a long time. Okay. <laughs> and then after this whole glorious story of the death of Mahaprajapati comes in, then they're back to the little details about the rules. Well, you can do it under this circumstance and so forth. So in every place where we find this story, it appears to be not quite fitting its um, library cataloging, shall we call it. And this suggests to me that this was a widely circulated story that actually was spread outside um, the standard recitation lineages and then was brought into different canons at different times and places. So what do we have then in the Pali version of this story? Let me start with this one. As the story goes, Mahapajapati is reflecting on the fact that the Buddha and other leading disciples will soon pass away, pass into final nirvana or parinirvana. And she resolves that it would be appropriate for her to do this first herself. Well, that makes sense. She's his foster mother. She's considerably older. And according to tradition, the Buddha died at the age of 80. So some versions of the story say that she was 120 when she died. Be that as it may, she resolves to go to the Buddha and ask for his permission to leave the world before him. As she's heading out, uh, sorry, as she's made this decision, there is a protective divinity, the guardian spirit, one or more, of her monastery that cries at the fact that she's going to be gone. And the raindrops, as it were, dampen the robes of the nuns and they say, what's going on? And they go and ask her. And she explains that she's resolved to leave this world and enter final nirvana before the Buddha does so. The other nuns, who are also said to be arhats, like Mahabhajapati, fully awakened, in other words, resolve that they're going to do the same. And so they all leave to go see the Buddha. On the way, a group of laywomen, upasikas, say, don't leave us. They see them going. Nothing is said about upasikas, male lay people. But the women lay, laity notice all these nuns and headed by Mapachapati leaving, and they beg them to stay. But they don't. They proceed to the Buddha with their mission. And Mahaprajapati uh, tells the Buddha what she has in mind and is given permission to pass into final nirvana. Then the Buddha tells her to perform miracles for the benefit of, the text says, young women who are confused. So again, we have a, another group of female characters. And Mahabhajapati does indeed perform spectacular miracles, as she does in every version of this story in every language. Uh, she does things like, first of all, flying up into the sky. Uh, she moves across the sky, seated cross-legged. She plunges into the ground and disappears and comes back. She magnifies her body so that there are multiple copies of her. Uh, one translator calls them clones, and then returns them back to one um, body. She touches the sun and moon with her hands and so forth. A series of amazing paranormal powers being exhibited here. No question 
that she's pre being presented as a powerful, capable, amazing uh, character in this narrative. The other nuns with her, the 500 nuns, also get permission and they all return to their monastery. Again, we see a group of lay women, upasikas, who come out of their houses and cry. They apparently have heard the news that all of these women are going to die. And uh, they're told that they should uh, bear in mind impermanence and practice the Dharma. And uh, it would be a little too uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek to say, get over it. <laughs> but focus on the Dharma. Don't, um, don't focus on your grief at the impending loss of these wonderful mentors. In the end, then, Mahapajapati goes through a series of meditational attainments through the jhana states, the four jhana states, and up through the formless attainments, and then back down again. There are a total of eight of these altogether. Then back down to the first one, and then up to the fourth, and from there, she dies. She enters final nirvana, just as the Buddha himself is said to have done. So there are many parallels here to the story of the Buddha's own subsequent, according to history, final nirvana. The Buddha then tells Ananda to announce her death to the monks, and there's a spectacular uh, cremation ceremony and funeral for them. Uh, and the Buddha then, in a very interesting touch, asks Ananda to put Mahapajapati's relics, her ashes after the cremation, into a bowl. And he holds the bowl up and praises her qualities and tells people not to grieve. She's liberated. So this is a moment of joy of final liberation, he says, not a moment to be grieving. And finally, and again, what sounds very much like an echo of the story of the Buddha's final nirvana in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha tells the audience to be refuges unto yourselves. Rely on yourselves for your own practice. Now, from what I've said, you can see that we have a lot of female characters. Virtually all of the characters in this story are female. The nuns, Mahapajapati herself, the accompanying nuns, the lay women who come out and react uh, with their sadness and impending loss here. Uh, only the Buddha and a few other male disciples are uh, male characters in this story. So that might look good as far as it goes. We have uh, quite a, a list of female narrative characters. And we have, as I pointed out, spectacular accomplishments on the part of Mahavajapati and also the other women who enter a final nirvana um, after her. What I'd like to do now is, in the very few minutes left, briefly shift gears to the Chinese version of the story that I mentioned. You heard me say there are several versions. There are half a dozen different versions of this tale. And we're trying to do a major compare and contrast with all of them in our seminar. It's been quite uh, wonderful to do this with such a great group of uh, students and postdocs and colleagues all putting their very knowledgeable eyes on this material. I'm picking just one from the Chinese for one particular reason. It is clearly the oldest version that we have and I would argue that it's significantly older than the Pali. The Pali, we the Apadana is one of the last books to be put into the canon. Uh, we know it should have been in there by the, before the 6th century because uh, the Apadanas are borrowed, as many of you probably know, in the uh, commentaries on the Terigata. 
So when that commentator who lived in the 6th century uh, wrote his comments on the Terigata, he had the Apadana stories about these women and used them, quoted, quoted them with attribution, with footnotes, we would say. He's not just kind of sneaking them in there, but actually saying, as the Apadana says. How much older than that is the Pali? We don't know for sure. But let me tell you what's in a Chinese text that we can date fairly precisely. And then you can make your own decision about how much space there might be between these versions. The Chinese version that I want to talk about is anonymous. So we don't have the name of a translator for it. This is true of most of the Chinese texts produced in the earliest centuries, the second and third centuries, even into the fourth in China. It was not usual at that time to say this was translated by Kumarajiva or this was translated by uh, Xuanzang or some other known person. Most of them were actually anonymous. And this text is no exception. But it has a very distinctive kind of language. This one is earlier than the third century one that actually caught my attention originally. This one, I suggest, is probably produced right at the end of the Han Dynasty, which means end of the second century, beginning of the third. Very archaic language and style, and very wooden. And if you read through that woodenness of the Chinese, you can see Indian syntax under it. In other words, this translator was trying to be extremely faithful to even the word order of the Indian text, which makes for pretty ugly Chinese, but it helps us to get back to what their source would have been. The story is very much like the Pali, except that it agrees with virtually all the other versions that the Buddha doesn't tell Mahabhajapati to perform miracles and that she doesn't perform them in his presence. In all the other versions, she and the other nuns have returned to their monastery, closed the door, in most cases gone out to a field. Uh, since they're going to rise into the air, you wouldn't want to be inside. <laughs> uh, and performed the miracles there. And all have the spectacular, glorious death, final nirvana. What's interesting in this version, the, the two, actually three oldest Chinese versions that we have, is what happens after the women have died. The Buddha has told Ananda this is going to happen. He then tells Ananda when it's happened, go into the city and tell the leading lay um, influential man about this. His name is probably something like Yashodha. It's, we're not sure. It's transcribed. And Ananda goes to him. And the man has the same reaction that Ananda had had when the Buddha told him that Mahabhachapati was going to die. Ananda collapses with grief and falls to the ground. He says, I'm so disoriented. I, I, can't, uh, I can't think. I, it's just so upsetting. Very, very strong emotion on the part of a male character. In the Pali version, he's upset, but they immediately say, because he thinks the Buddha's going to die soon, too. <laughs> so it's not the same front and center focus on Mahabhajapati that we have in the Chinese version. When he goes to this leading layman, the layman has the same reaction. He, the same words are used. He falls to the ground. He's just completely grieving. But then he says, what did we do to offend the nuns? that they died without telling us first. Why did they leave us? And then he says, from now on, the monastery will be empty. Their, their practice seats will be empty. The town will be empty. Never again will we see them coming for alms. 
So to me, this is a startling difference from the later versions of the story, including the Polly. It's showing a very strong interface between the male lay community and the renunciant women, how much they are valued by the male practitioners in the town. The story goes on. There's, of course, there were 500 other nuns. Now there are 500 other influential men. Their job is to bring the various accoutrements, the equipment for the cremation and the funeral. And that is also very spectacular. And in contrast to some of what's been said about other versions of the story, all of the nuns in the earliest versions of the text have stupas built for them, reliquaries, formal uh, funeral mounds in a sense, but that become then an object of devotion for people who visit. So the social and gender dynamics are very different in these early Chinese versions of the story including the, the one that I'm saying is probably late second, early third century. I've looked at this very carefully. There is no question it's an authentic translation of Indian material. This is not, in other words, a Chinese apocryphon, something the Chinese made up because they liked it better. This is Indian material in Chinese translation. So we're seeing a very different vision of the way the four components of the Sangha are relating to one another in this story. I think I'm probably over my time. I'm cert there's certainly much more that I could uh, foist on you, but I will not do that. But I'd be very happy to answer questions or hear your comments. Thank you. Wow, thank you very much. We've already started the dramatization. <laughs> questions? Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious if you know the significance of, and this I guess is in all the stories, but nevertheless, I, I was curious, of her wanting to pass before the Buddha. And then the other question is the significance of the miracles. Mm. Good questions. Um, in virtually every version, there's something in the story that we don't really expect of an arhat. She says, I can't bear to see the Buddha, and then she'll mention one or two or more other disciples, pass away. I would rather enter final nirvana first. So there's, in the narrative, there's a kind of emotional quality that I suspect has been edited out of the Pali because some editor noticed that arhats aren't supposed to feel this way, that it was a, a popular story that the person who... Uh, transmitted at an early point, didn't think that was inconsistent, but some editors uh, did. So the significance in most of the versions is that, on the one hand, she doesn't want to see them leave, enter nirvana. She doesn't want to go through that experience, but she also just talks about she's old. And if she's 120, she certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> And then the significance of the miracles you asked about. Those are there across the board as demonstration of one of the ways that in ancient Buddhism uh, an awakened person could develop uh, paranormal, uh, we might say, supernatural powers. It was assumed that that's one of the things that can happen. And so these are extreme versions of what those powers would be. I mean, rising up into the air, and uh, in most versions, she emits both uh, fire and water from her body simultaneously. 
But these are standard miracles that we see elsewhere in the Buddhist canon, usually done by the Buddha or, in some cases, a leading male disciple. So it's saying that they are accomplished women. Is that, is that the... Yes, it's, it's a way of demonstrating how accomplished, how fabulous their attainment was. Not only were they fully enlightened as arhats, but they could also do this stuff. <laughs> it's kind of icing on the cake and certainly not seen as necessary. Thank you. What is, what is the meaning of, of them all needing to go to Parinibbana together? That's a good question. Um, it, some people refer to these as group narratives that um, it enhances and supports the um, role of the main character, Mahapajapati, just by saying, and yes, and all these other Arhat nuns also were capable of doing that. So it's, it's very much a supporting cast, but um, one that probably just works as a story in some ways, uh, much more dramatically, because the monastery does become empty when they've all died. Uh, in some versions, there are a couple of um, novices who are still there and are not yet awakened, and that's, that's between two and six of them, depending on the version. And so that's another story. But... Uh, does anybody else have thoughts about group narratives like this? I mean, there are also 500 of the leading male citizens, so it's a, a trope in this literature to, for 500 to just mean a lot. <laughs> yes? Well, uh, I have lots about the group narratives, and I have so many different questions and things that I'd like to discuss about this, um, but, but that's uh, not, not what I was planning on asking. Um, I'm wondering about your thought about uh, intertextual dialogue because in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta and the stories related to uh, the Buddha's final passing, of which this may be one, uh, then there's the story of Ananda having his mind taken over by Mara and not asking the Buddha to extend his life. And uh, then it seems, at least in the Pali version uh, from the Ateri Apadana, uh, that uh, one of the kind of key points you, you mentioned, even this story being passed down under the heading of the, the sneeze, mm -hmm. the, the subject of the sneeze, and that's what I'm, I'm coming to, and the blessing for a long life. And mm. uh, in the Pali version, then, one of the things that seems to be a kind of a a reactive point or uh, making a specific point is then uh, exactly about this and the Buddha saying that uh, this uh, blessing, blessing him with long life mm -hmm. is not the way to bless the Buddha. So he's yes. saying this in the Pali text to yes. Mahapajapati, go to me. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's a point that's being made there. Ananda yes. is present and he's saying that is not the way. Wishing for, for your long life, that's not the way to bless the Buddha. And mentioning yes. then harmony of the Sangha, practicing well and harmony in the Sangha is the way to bless the Buddha. So it seems to me like there's intertextual dialogue happening Absolutely. here, and I'm interested in your perspective on that. That is a great question. And in fact, um, it looks very likely that the Pali version is probably the latest version we have and that its editors knew of some of these other stories. I doubt they knew the Mula Sarvastavada Vinaya. 
but there's a version of the story about the sneeze in another collection in Chinese that was translated from probably a Sanskrit or probably classical Sanskrit uh, that she has actually worked on in our seminar, um, where that story of the sneeze is also present. And it looks, when you're reading through the Pali, it's all kind of going along, and then all of a sudden there's this thing about the sneeze that, it's like, where did that come from? I strongly suspect it came from this poetic uh, collection that was circulating in an, another school that we think has affinities with probably Melissa Rastavadin material. So it would be unlikely, I think, for a member of one Buddhist lineage like Theravada to be looking at the Vinaya of another school like the Mulasarvastavada. But it's not unlikely at all that popular stories put cast in a literary form could be known to people who would then add that element to the Pali. Does that make sense? That's my guess. It does. So the sneeze is a real fingerprint. It's, it's an unusual thing. And in, in the Pali, it's not the frame as it is in the other texts. It's just a, a like, oh, this goes in the story too. It's a counter to the blame of Ananda, the blame that's placed on Ananda. It's really a significant counter. That's a really nice way to read it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I have so many other questions and thoughts, but I'll allow others to ask. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I just realized, I think you said you might refer back to the story of the Buddha being asked three times to um, ordain nuns and what your thoughts on that are because that's a very profound question I think for a lot of us. Yes. Um, Many decades ago uh, I worked a little bit on where I was working on stories of the decline of the Dharma that and one of the things that often goes with that asking three times business is the Buddha says to Ananda, well, if there weren't nuns, the Dharma would have lasted for a thousand years, and since there are nuns, it'll only last 500. And you kind of wonder why he would do something like that if he really thought that. So I was tra- tracing where that story does and doesn't appear. It does not appear in... There are two, two vinyas in the Chinese that don't have that at all. They have the eight weighty obligations that nuns have to take on, but they don't have this, that story at all. There's also a version in the Sanskrit that has the story, but it's really garbled. So what I have long suspected is that that story does not go all the way back to the Buddha. The Sanskrit version I just mentioned is associated with uh, one of those Mahasangika schools, for any of you who've read Buddhist history of different lineages. And so... Some people have said, well, actually the Mahasangikas do have this tradition. This, the first break is supposed to be between the Mahasangikas. The, I like to translate that as Bolsheviks sometimes. It's the self-proclaimed <laughs> majority and the other people, the elders. Um, so if you've got something that's in the elder scriptures but not in the uh, Mahasangika scriptures, you would have something pretty old. And it looks to me now, from having just gone back to this Sanskrit late Mahasangika manuscript, that they originally didn't have it, and they kind of were trying to remember, what's that story supposed to say? And it's just completely a mess. There are, like, there are two requests from Mahaprajapati, uh, then there are three from Ananda, and it's just... Um, there's a French translation for any of you who can read the French, and if I'm really lucky, I'll maybe uh, manage to do an English of just that part of the story. But if we could demonstrate by comparative textual analysis that that story does not come into the tradition on day one. 
that it's a later formulation that, that was shared by a lot of schools but not universal, I think that would be very encouraging. That the Buddha was not so resistant to starting a Sangha of women. Hi, I've wondered if you have any um, Vietnamese sources because I've heard some Ma Bajapati stories and then Thich Nhat Hanh actually told them also that um, are kind of charming but there are uh, interactions in the family between Ananda, Rahula, Ma Bajapati, and Gautama, you know, Gautama. So very interesting, and they feel really old. They're sort of little vignette kind of mm -hmm. things of getting him out of the bathroom to a proper <laughs> thing. So. I haven't looked at the Vietnamese at all. And I, I don't know, the Vietnamese used the Chinese Buddhist canon as their kind of canonical source, uh, except for those who were part of the Theravada tradition who used the Pali. But I'll bet there are other uh, local traditions that developed out of those. It would be very interesting to look into. Thank you. That's a good lead. Hi. Uh, so I'm really interested to ask you your suspicions about uh, the late second century, third century mm -hmm. Chinese um, mm -hmm. story. Uh, there were no miracles there, but like in the later versions there were. And what do you think the reason that these miracles occurred later on or were inserted probably? Mm. Or, yeah. Actually, I, I probably didn't express that very clearly. The miracles are in all the versions, but they're moved in the Pali. Uh, in most of the versions, the miracles take place after Mahapachapati and the 500 other Arhat nuns have gone back to their own monastery. So it's in private. They're not on stage. In the case of the Pali, it's in the Buddha's presence and whoever else was there already, whether lay people or monastics, happened, whoever was in the audience when that took place. And I think it's quite telling that in the Pali, the Buddha says to her, do these miracles. Is that a commentarial uh, touching up, I wonder? In other words, monastics were not supposed to show off by doing miracles to laity. There's a Vinaya rule about that. And um, so for her to have just simply done this, as she does in the other stories, but way back at her own monastery in privacy, so to say, um, to do it in public would probably have bothered somebody who knew the Vinaya. And so I suspect that, that some of that is signs of editorial fixing. But the miracles are there in all the versions. So I think it's probably f safe to assume that this began as a story of a miraculous end to a distinguished life. And that that's part and parcel of the story from the beginning. At least we don't have any versions that lack the, the pyrotechnics. <laughs> I don't know if there's an answer to this, but um, something that I've been wondering about is, of course, we know about Mahapajapati for the two things that you mentioned being the Buddha's foster mother, as well as having this fantastic parinibbana. So um, I, I don't know if there's any, uh, I'm sorry, this fantastic parinibbana, I'm sorry, and the third thing, also uh, making the request for um, to being ordaining. I, I just find myself wondering if there's um, the significance that this one, a single person has these two different distinctions, maybe three distinctions, of being the foster mother and being the first nun. I know the story is, you know, a part of uh, Ananda's appeal to the Buddha is calling on, you know, she, he, she was your foster mother after all. Mm -hmm. But other than that, can, do you see any link between these things? That uh, Those two roles? Yes. I mean, yes. Or the three, if yes. we include the, yeah. the Parinirvana scene. Yeah. Um, 
in terms of textual analysis of the um, story that Ananda uses her foster motherhood, her service to the Buddha, as one of the arguments for um, ordaining nuns, starting a, a nun's order. My read of that is that um, in the Pali and other versions too, it's Ananda has made the argument um, that women can attain the four fruits, that they can become stream enters and so on up to arhats. He's asked the Buddha, is this in fact the case? And the Buddha admits that yes, it is. And then the argument about her service as foster mother is really kind of parenthetical. Some of the translators actually use M dashes to kind of stick it in, and then it goes back to the four fruits. So looking at other scriptures that are preserved in Pali and in other languages, there's a long version of that argument that is there in the Gift of the Robe story, the Dakinavibhanga. And there, when Mahapajapati tries to give this individual present to her foster son, and he says, no, give it to the Sangha as a whole. It's not, he's not really rejecting it. He's just saying, don't make this a, a family thing. Uh, make it something, an offering to the Sangha, and everybody will benefit more. Ananda says, oh, it's exactly the same argument, but she did so much for you. She raised you. She nursed you after your own mother died. And the Buddha says, indeed, I do owe her a lot, but she owes me even more because I taught her to take refuge in the three jewels and allowed her to undertake the Buddhist path, really. And that's, he goes on and on about how that's an even greater debt than what he owes to her as a foster mother. So my very strong suspicion is that text segment, what we like to call pericopes, you know, being fancy text scholars, that it's a little excerpt from that text, that it was actually transferred from the story of the gift of the robe into the story of the ordination, and that's not its native habitat. So the real argument was, can they attain the four fruits? Yes, they can. It's not because she's your mom. It's because <laughs> women can do this. So it's not, uh, and one translator has even uh, said that only you, you know, Mahapachapati, should just do this. But my read is that that's an intrusion from, and intrusions happen all the time in t- traditions where people are memorizing texts and they come to something similar, and they kind of press recall, and in it goes to a, a sutta that it wasn't originally in, but now it is. Sorry, that was a bit long, but that, that's my take on, on the argument in that text. Thank you, Jan. That was wonderful. I'd like to ask you about uh, Mahabhajapati's poem in the Terigata, which ends with a reference to Mahamaya, the Buddha's yes. mother and her sister, and it almost seems like a non sequitur. What, what do you make of this, this reference to Mahamaya? It almost seems like a non sequitur. <laughs> I think you put it very well. <laughs> it's, there are some funny things about that uh, poem. One of the funniest is that it mentions the Four Noble Truths, and it mentions the second one using the word hetu, cause. That appears to belong to a rather late layer of Pauline materials. So what's the date of that? You know, has it been added to? Were there things, words of hers that were, are in there that were later um, enlarged? I don't know. We may find layers even within six verses sometimes. But I agree. The, the reference to her sister is like, well, okay. <laughs> How does that really fit into this context?
Thank you all.